0: I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, I write for the New York Times and the New Yorker.
1: I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Peter Marks, Theater Critic of The Washington Post. Welcome to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of Theater Communications Group.
0: And it is already my pleasure to correct <laughs> Peter because today we're f- <laughs> today what? we are four on the aisle. Um, oh, we are a very special guest. We are welcoming the writer and director, James Lapine. He's here to talk about his new uh, oral history book, putting it together, how Steve Sondheim and I created Sunday in the Park with George. And of course, that is the musical that opened on Broadway in 1984 and went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama the following year. And, uh, so for his book, uh, James Lapine talked to pretty much everybody who worked Uh, on the show and was still alive, uh, both on Broadway and during its hectic and completely crazy workshop um, stretch, I guess, run at Playwrights Horizons in 1983. So the book really is great for people who are both obsessive about Stephen Sondheim and you know who you are. And then, but it's also really great for anybody who's interested in how musicals and, and, and theater is developed in general.
2: There's plenty to talk about with James. So he'll be the sole focus of today's episode, uh, followed by our regular section about what we have seen recently.
1: Well, well, thank you for correcting me, Elizabeth. <laughs> it is four on the aisle. I know that uh, readers have, or listeners were writing in about my bullying you over creed uh, and demanding that you divulge. Uh, nobody knows that we have a shtick that we develop with uh, some comedy people in California, <laughs> yes. that that's where that all we, evolves from.
0: We have from. room in Burbank.
1: Yeah, we, so, so all, <laughs> everything is performative, uh, don't believe anything you hear about the way we, we actually adore each other, <laughs> but in, in, in fact, about today, so over several decades, James Lapine has become, um, an innovative, uh, writer and director, of, uh, at the, at the center of the American musical, and mostly through his, um, his work with two very influential figures, William Finn, with whom he uh, worked on Falsettos, uh, the 20th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and Little Miss Sunshine, and Stephen Sondheim, with whom he uh, created Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, and Passion.
2: James's other projects include adapting and directing Moss Hart's memoir, Act One. He's currently working on the new Tom Kitt, Michael Corey musical, Flying Over Sunset, for which he is writing the book and directing. We're very happy and indeed honored to welcome him on Three on the Isle. James, if if we might just start by having you uh, tell us a bit of the story that is told in this book, which is the unlikely way in which you uh, suddenly found yourself a director. How did you how did you get started?
3: Ah, well, uh I had no intention of ever being a director, but I um I had wanted to be a film director, which was something um was in the back of my mind. I had wished I wanted wanted to do and wished one day I could. Uh but I um was a photographer and um Wanted to be like a street photographer, Hmm. uh, a fine art photographer, but uh, in order to make a living, I started doing photojournalism, which was unbelievably stressful in the uh, pre-digital age um, of having to, you know, go run out, take a photo of someone or something, run back to the darkroom, print it up, hope it turned out okay, run it over to the magazine they tell you it's not good enough. You run back to have another souffle made. That was the one that did me. It was a photo of a souffle <laughs> that I screwed up, and I had to go back and beg the chef to make another souffle so I could take that photo. And that's when I said, this isn't working. So um, I had some graphic design skills, and I started picking up some work there, and that's how I ended up uh, getting a um, part-time uh freelance gig with the Yale School of Drama, designing their hmm. theater magazine. And um, Bruce Stein liked what I did with the magazine and invented a kind of spot for me at the theater, at the school. Uh, I did all the uh, Yale rep graphics and posters and, uh, ads and programs etc and then uh what years yeah, was that james that was around
1: 70 uh i want to say 75 76 in that range that's when i was there no way yeah i was an undergraduate i i i, I was a um you know subscriber to the Yale rep i saw all the things with all those actors jeremy guide and right. norma and uh uh-huh. you know carmen de Lavallade and christopher yeah. lloyd so i was there when you were there I worked for Jeremy's wife. You know, Jeremy's
3: yes. wife was the person who kind of ran the press for V.L. Rub. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Bruce Dean did this um, interesting thing where uh, for a couple of weeks, I think it was in January, maybe two or three weeks, he asked everyone in the school uh, students to do a project outside their area. So if they were um, in the dramatic literature department, they were would act and the actors would build the set and I think it was really because he all the all the faculty really wanted to be actors. So he also insisted that the faculty do something different. And my students, I was teaching a design course, said you should direct a play because you tell us all about these plays in New York that we don't have any reference to. Um, the Richard Foreman plays Robert mm. Wilson. I was really interested in in uh, Meredith Monk, the really uh, downtown fringe. so, I said, well, find me a play. Yeah. And they found me this play called Photograph. Well, the title seemed right up my alley. And it was Gertrude Stein, and it was uh, uh, five acts long, a play, and it was only three pages. So um, we did uh, basically a theme and variation evening. And, you know, we didn't use professional actors. It was very visual, it was very arty farty. And um, you'll appreciate this. So the woman who produced it was actually a stage manager. And she and I got a nice little review in the local paper. And she said, oh, we want to do this in New York. And I said, you know, well, fine. And um, uh, we didn't have any money. And a friend of mine was doing her doctoral dissertation on Jasper Johns, um, who just casually said, well, he loves Gertrude Stein. So I wrote him a letter. And through him, we got 2500 bucks and put it on in a loft in on green street this is so mickey and GD put on a show i mean we literally put up posters and so saying anyone who want want to be in a play wow <laughs> and, you know, the, the actors were like uh you know the cashier at the health food store and uh you know a friend of mine who was a ballerina and, and a little girl who was the daughter of friend of mine, there wasn't a professional actor in the group, and uh, another friend of mine, very charming woman, uh, most of my friends were in the art world, said, what can I do to help? And I said, well, I don't know how you get people to review a show. Um, So she called up Richard Eder, who was then the critic at the Times, and somehow sweet-talked him coming to see this strange little show, and he brought his 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 son, I think, like a 10-year-old kid, and uh, he wrote an incredibly positive
2: review. Um, hmm. And that sort of started the ball rolling. And then 10 minutes ten minutes later, you're sharing a joint with Stephen Sondheim.
3: <laughs> not quite 10 minutes, but yeah, felt like is, 10 is minutes, it, yeah. Is
0: it fair to say that it's actually a, it's a pretty rare background? Like, you have a background in visual arts and, and graphic design. Is that like a rare instance in American theater directing that feels rare? Like, it's not a a very common journey.
3: Mm. Uh, Yeah, I think that's fair to say. In filmmaking, though, Robert Benton uh, was a graphic designer. Mm. He was one of the art directors of Esquire before he became a film director, and Stanley Kubrick was a graphic designer. So maybe in the
1: theatre not, but there are those two instances in film directing, yeah. Did you say, by the way, James, that Jasper Johns sent you $2,500? Is that what happened? What happened was uh he had just founded um
3: and I'm I'm gonna screw up the name of it, but he and uh Merce Cunningham mm-hmm. and I can't remember the third person started uh a foundation, uh the foundation for contemporary artists, some huh. some artists. It was more a a, a performance, uh it's still in existence. Interesting. And, um so he called them up and said, "You should give this guy the money." So fascinating. Um, that's what they did. Amazing. Yeah, it is kind of amazing.
0: So we, I, I guess, we should fa- fast forward a little bit to so early '93. You find yourself on this project at Playwrights Horizons.
3: Or early '83. 80, '83,
0: 83, right. 83, right? And so, in the book, in the book, you talk about how. You, you made with Sondheim. And I think I'm interested in the kind of difference in the way Sondheim was perceived then as opposed to, to now, because I feel like it's really like it's changed so much. Like he's now, well, he's clearly re- revered. Like, was that the case at that point or because you talk about how he's considered uh, a commercial person at the time and there's this gap in worlds between the world of Broadway and the world of Broadway, which I felt from the book is a lot deeper than it is now. Did you feel that's fair?
3: Um, well, looking back, I guess, I mean, I, I think he was revered in certain, certain circles, but certainly not to the degree that he is now. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, not being from that world, I didn't really come into it revering him frankly knowing much about him so i'd only seen one show didn't you mention
2: in the book Mm -hmm. that you'd only you only knew one show of his
3: yeah the only one i had seen was sweeney todd uh which i saw three times i thought it was incredible Mm -hmm. but um i just was you know i know it sounds so corny to say but i just i was a downtown guy you know I just that's what i I was interested in the art scene and people related to the art scene and theater that was related to the art scene. And so Broadway was not a frame of reference
2: I really had.
3: Mm.
0: That, that that
3: which I think is great because I think that's one of the reasons we hit it off. Right.
2: Well, he was just he was just coming off the failure of uh right. Marilee, we rolled along. So he needed a change, didn't he?
3: Well, um you know, I don't think he's somebody that really plots those kinds of things out. But, you know, I think it's deeper than that, frankly, because he had been working with Hal Prince for all yeah. those years. And, uh, I mean, it's too ironic that they chose that show, which is about collaborators breaking <laughs> up. And, right. you know, and right. boom, right. there they go in their separate ways. So um, I think I think he was certainly at um, in a funk when I met him. Um, I don't think he knew where he was headed or what he was going to do. But I think it was obviously my good luck to meet him at that moment in time, because I think, yes, I think he needed a change. And I think the way I knew Steve then, he was very, I won't say he was very dependent on Hal. Hal was the engine in a way, you know, Mm. uh, of their projects. And I think Steve, that was all Steve knew, you know, in a way of having a strong director, uh, pushing a show forward, not the writers
1: push, pushing the show forward. So so how, how did you, who broached Sunday in the park with George? And how did it, how did this idea that, you know, could have been a noun rather than a verb? You know, it could have been just a, a you know, the story of a painting or of a painter, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, translate for most audiences easily uh, into uh, the conception of a musical where did it how did that evolve
3: well you know I, I just to circle back in my theme and variation and photograph I use the image of Le Grand shot. so hmm. uh, my very first thing it's just a painting I've been fascinated with since I saw it when I was you know late teenager and um I think it was a lot of marijuana, you know, uh, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I don't know. I used to just get stoned and sit down at the typewriter. Oh my God. And I know it sounds, <laughs> I'm telling you, it sounds ridiculous and it was ridiculous, but somehow, you know, came out of it whole, but, um, I think it was a flight of fancy. And, and, um, I just, I just, wrote the first five pages and and he read them and you know this was pre internet, pre-fax machine. I mean it was so weird to go and like hand somebody five pages and sit there and watch them while they read it. And then he goes, I think I better read this again. (laughs) He reads it again. And I'm waiting like, you know, what is this, you know, Broadway (laughs) guy going to say about this? And then he uh, you know, he goes and he points on the second page to some inane little line, and he goes, "I think there should be a song here." And
2: oh my, God. yeah, and I say, "Why?" Wow. How did that? How did that strike you? Those, those words. I mean, did you think it would be like that?
3: Well, you know, I'd only done uh, the show with Bill Finn, and and Bill Finn and I. Right. I mean, it was hilarious how we did that show, "March of the Falsettos." I mean, we. Uh, had like four songs. And it was the days when Andre Bishop just said, well, you should work with him and he should work with you. And here's the space upstairs and I'll give you four weeks and, you know, we'll put it on. Well, we had no show and we just kind of built it as we went along. And I would just create visual scenes and tell Bill, oh, I think she should do this and they should come over there. It was really like, being a graphic designer frankly you yeah. know when you're doing <clears throat> pagination in a magazine yeah. or a book and figuring out where i used to do signatures you know almost in my shows the same way and it with bill finn it was like well you only have a, you had a cast of four I so said, that's like we got to get one more person here let's let's let them have a child and so we got a child and then i said well she can't have two songs in a row bill so and he said <laughs> This is really arty, and I think you need to have an <laughs> opening number that will make the audience relax and that's great. You know, not feel like they're at some arty party show, so that's where yeah, it went.
2: He's talked He's talked about it in Other Connections as well. That's how Comedy Tonight got written. Oh, that there really? needed to be a, a, a song that would tell the audience, okay, right. this is going to be funny.
0: Right. Actually, right. You, you just brought up a... Uh, 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 William Finn and you've had very fruitful collaboration with both Sondheim and him. Like uh, you've worked on several shows with, with each one. Can you tell us a bit of, I mean, they're clearly very different people, but like for you as a collaborator and, and director, how do you adapt to each one, each one uh, of them and how they work differently?
3: Well, a couple things. First of all, Bill Finn also went to Williams college where Steve went and actually when he got out of college he he sat outside Steve Sondheim's door (laughs) And when Steve finally came home one day said can I I'm from Williams College can I play you my music so that was sort of an ironic uh thing that the two of them both (laughs) came out of the same school I think you work with uh you know I think there has to be somebody driving the train a Mm. little bit and um I think in both instances, um, that ended up being me. Uh, I don't know that it's always that way, um, but I haven't worked that much on other musicals with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the best thing about working with both of them was that it was just the two of us. You know, when you start adding on, you know, a lyricist and a composer and a choreographer and a director and, you know, y- you're, you're in a village, you know, but when there's just two of you, it's, it's so much easier and uh, becomes a real partnership in, in in large for the whole project. Whereas you know, Hal was not the writer or, or the writer in the project, so he was driving a different kind of
0: mm.
3: kind of vehicle forward than I
1: than I was. I think, James, James, I'm curious. You know, I have thought about this, and you know, I think the most emotional act one finale I have ever experienced, and I can never stop wanting to see it is the is the is sunday mm-hmm. in sunday in the park with george it's yeah. just so moving uh when the when you know the combination of of george uh giving us the, the 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 parameters of of art and what you know what makes a great painting in in terms of just some nouns that he t- he, he shouts to us and the those those figures from lagrangette Moving into those famous spaces, those famous positions, mm. if you know the painting and the music swelling. Um, I, I, it's an epiphany that I, never gets old. Mm. And I wondered, you know, does that how it struck you? You know, when you were creating this piece, is that the effect you go for? Is it? is it a surprise to you that it works that way? Did you always have in mind talking to Steve, you know, we're going to end act one, the painting happens and, and wow. And, you know, I mean, it it almost feels like the crescendo that ends the story, you know, a story. And it does, in fact. Yeah, that was there.
3: I mean, I, I said to him when we started, the only thing I know about is this is how it's going to end. And that's the recreation of the painting. Uh, I didn't Mm -hmm. put the wow in there like you just did, but, um, I didn't know Mm. it was going to be a wow moment. (laughs) I just knew that's what we were heading towards. So, um, no, I don't, you know, I I don't know. I don't, I'm not very driven by audience as he was in a way, because that's Mm. the world that he had unfortunately had to live through uh, at that point in his life as a writer. Um, And the high stakes of the economics of it all, you know, I was a picture maker. That's what i I did, you mm. know, I, with photography and graphic design, It was making pictures. And that's how my mind worked.
2: You must have found it liberating to work with you.
3: Well, I think he did. I think it was so different than anybody he had been encountered with in the theater that I think that interested him a lot. Steve had one foot out the door, though, of course, the entire good stretch And um, it's funny because I was always the one foot out the door guy, but suddenly his foot was further out the door than mine. And I kept thinking, well, this guy's never going to write a song. So I had a commission and I was using this piece as the commission that I got at Playwrights Horizons. Uh, So I thought it'll be a play, you know, Mm -hmm. but he ended up writing a song. So that's
1: where we. I saw the piece. I saw the original. I mean, I didn't see it off. I saw it at the shoe. Wasn't it the The shoe? It was somewhere in the. What theater was it in? Uh, the, the, booth. Booth. the booth. I remember seeing, you know, the first act and then I mean this is like I was, you know, basically even more of an idiot then than I am now. But um I remember the Chroma loom happening, that amazing machine yeah, you yeah. created. But I, you know, I think I was so entranced by act one that I had a hard time processing act two. And that was a big issue at the time. As I recall, there were a lot of writing about, you know, there was a lot of controversy about the second act.
3: No. Oh no. Yeah. Like people hated it, you know, and um, (laughs) well, um, first of all, not everyone liked the first act, but uh, the people who liked the first act, you know, didn't like the second act, but Mm -hmm. in fairness, I I think um, it wasn't finished. I think the majority of the preview audience never saw a finished show. Uh, mm. I think when the critics came in, was just about literally, you know, the last paintbrush dot on the canvas. And um, so I th- I f- I felt there was already such bad word of mouth on the second act that you know people were coming in almost expecting it not to work. Um, But I don't know, you know, I just think Steve and I, it was unfinished and he had those two songs that were missing, which I think pulled the whole act together. And
2: Mm. um, Oh, yeah. Obviously. It's great how how you write about that in the book. mm,
3: Yeah, well, that's the drama of the book, frankly, you know, it was really like, uh, to this day, it's very hard for me to understand because Steve wrote a lot of the songs rather quickly and I could never understand why these last two songs um, just weren't coming along. I mean, we were in the entire preview period, and they were the last two, they were never there. So, um, but as I also say in the book, you know, it wasn't like he was twiddling his thumbs, he was just writing them and writing them and writing them over and cutting them and trimming them and refining them. I think there was something that, was hard for him to let go of them. And he did not go to a lot of previews. He, he, he doesn't go to the theater that much. So, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough, you know, so I was sort of there bearing the brunt of mm-hmm. it.
2: Did it reassure you, did he reassure you that, that this had happened before, that he'd written songs at the very last minute?
3: No, but, you know, if it were Hal Prince, Hal Prince would have probably been screaming at him, you know. Where the fucking songs and whatever. And I'm maybe just our relationship was so different. I just not my, in my style to do that. I just trusted him and uh, uh, he knew we needed them and, you know, it wasn't going to help the situation by trying to beat it out of him. He used to say to me when we, I don't remember if it was when we did Sunday or as we were working on other shows, but he'd go, James, do you want it Tuesday or do you want it good? You know, and <laughs> And, of course, the natural response is I want it Tuesday and I want it good. But, you know, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, he he is who he is because of the way he works. And and that's, you know, what you buy into when you work with him, which is fine by me. Did you ever take a show out of town? Uh, gee, we did Into the Woods in uh, San Diego. California? Yeah. yeah. Right, right,
1: right. And...
3: um I mean, of our shows, that was the only one we did did out of, out of town.
1: You had no you had no particular interest in you know like those tryout sort of formulas. I mean, really, that you didn't. Really I didn't need know that?
3: better. You know, mm. uh, now I would definitely want to go out of town. Although the problem just... with out of town now is you might as well be in town because everybody's reviewing yep. it mm. the minute they go see oh, it on in the first preview. So I'm not sure. sure going out of town means so much that you're going to have any more negative word of mouth or whatever is if you were in New York. I don't know. I'm a workshop guy. I think if I had my brothers, I'd just I love doing workshops. I think I would just, you know, I never get tired of doing a workshop. But, but
0: but but you think sometimes like I feel like I see that a lot these days. Like I feel like some things are workshop to death and then it, like all the fun is sucked out of them or any kind of individuality. Like where where like where do you draw the line between refining something and then you reach a point where someone has to say, okay, it's, it's, it's working. It's good. We've got to stop because otherwise right. I, I feel like it gets watered down. Well, there's two kinds
3: of workshops. There's a the workshop that the writers want to have and have, and then there's the workshop that the producers want mm. to have. And it's the producers workshops that go on and on and on. And they are because they're auditioning the show for people to right. write them a check. And um, that's not really a writer's workshop. That's, that's you know, a car salesman's workshop. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think for us as writers, um, it takes the pressure off of us. If we don't, the workshops we do, we don't have people coming to see them, you know, right. other than maybe uh, one friend for everybody in the cast at the end. It's really for us as the writers. Right. And the director and choreographer, et cetera. I-
0: Actually, I mean, the, okay, this is kind of like almost an existential question, but you talk. So you're talking about how hard it was for to get that second act to work because you're missing songs. It's just, it was really hard. I like mean, the, the entire time, the second act is a really big problem. And that's a very common problem in musicals in general. Mm. There's this whole like second act. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. like, what, why is like, why is the problem? Why can't musical, what do musicals, and it seems less, less so in plays. There's something about musicals. And their second acts where suddenly like the whole thing goes to pot. Like, what mm-hmm. is this inability? It's almost existential, seriously. Like Yeah, just do finishing a one act. Yeah. <laughs> of like you up to a great start, and then something happens.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And um, I have no answer for it, but I think almost all shows are individual in a way you know right. each of them may have their own issues that make that the case I mean often it's routining and so many musicals as you know are based on movies and you know existing material and sometimes they're just not routine well mm-hmm. and as someone pointed out to me if you look at the Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals the second act has very few new songs and there's mostly reprises and mm-hmm. Um, but I really couldn't answer that question for you. Mm. Uh, I think it could be as simple as when you start working, you start at the top of the first act, (laughs) and you don't get to the second act until, you know, and then like you have three days and, you know, oh my God, we got to do the second, you know, we got to get to that second act. So, uh, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I could see that being the case in some
1: instances. Right. I think I think it's also why the second episode of many series suck because they've sold the show on the first wow. series on TV and the second one is just you know oh my god they they lighted this now we got to write this thing yeah. you know what do we have uh, so I you know it, it just that burst of inspiration is often in the conception of the piece which very often <laughs> I mean it's shocking to hear that uh, like the opening number or the opening numbers of a show are not the first one's written because mm. they often feel like, you know, they really do set the tone. Right. They really, you know, drive. And, that, everything and that's why out. you yeah. did
0: uh act one, which could be subtitled only the good stuff. <laughs> 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 that's the, but I, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I have so many questions, but like, I, I love the book because I love how to books and, and you talk actually in the <laughs> book, you said you wish you had had a book like that when you were doing this. So there's a how to aspect, like, especially when you, um, I love that you don't take for granted what the reader knows or does not know. And for instance, when you explain, you're like, okay, well, can you tell me what the difference is between an orchestrator and an arranger? And I was just like, thank you. Because <laughs> it's, it's like, you think, you know, and then you read it and you're like, Oh, okay, actually, maybe, maybe I wasn't exactly clear what mm. these guys do. And the the borders are very blurred. Yes. But, you know, in many cases, because sometimes they do both or, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little unclear, but I, I love that you do that. And it's very, um, there's a kind of ped- ped- pedagogical aspect to it. It's like, okay, yeah, this is I, what this person does. And, and this is how they all work together. Yeah. I wanted to do that. I wanted
3: to write a book that would be for students actually mm. of the theater. And, uh, I, that's why I didn't, I didn't know these things when I started and, and, and particularly, people learn their areas if you go to drama school or whatever. If you're a designer, you're a designer. You know, they're not teaching you. They, I think that they really need to teach everybody mm-hmm. about everything, including the business side and the producing side. And uh, a lot of directors don't know anything about really how to design anything. And um, they count so much on, on a, uh, their designer to do that and it's really like well i need to get her on here and him off there and i need a door but it's not uh i think i think the more you know about every aspect of the theater you know the better
1: you're going to be at your own particular job i wonder too i i'm curious um james about you know i saw your play 12 dreams many years ago mm-hmm. i think at lincoln center i you know i'm yeah, like the places could be. yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, I was thinking about, you know, looking over your work, uh, you know, starting with, you know, a character called Mendel, a psychiatrist in, <laughs> in uh, False, March of the Falsettos, that there's a, a – th- one of the – through interesting to hear you're such a visual person because I always thought you had a deep sort of interest in, like, psychiatric – Aspects of theater, whether it's Jungian or Bruno Bettelheim mm-hmm. in, you know, with, uh, with Into the Woods, there's always an exploration, even in passion, you know, of the internal lives of the peculiar internal lives of characters, the nature of those things that are so mysterious that you seem to want to explore in many different um, ways. Mm. I mean, am I overstating this? Was that something that was intentional on your part? Well, it was in that period
3: of my life. I, you know, I used to go take classes at the Jung Institute and it was, it was not psychology as much as it was dream, dream worlds and, and um, the unconscious, you know, I was always kind of really interested in the unconscious. And when I sort of say I smoked a joint and sat down <laughs> to type you know, I mean, Interesting. It, that's what I was doing in a funny way. Wow. I was, I was not judging what I was doing. I was just seeing where my mind would take me and not get in the mm. way of it, and then I'd clean up the mess later. So, mm. but no, I don't. I, I was never that. Um, I, I, whatever I was interested in is what I was interested in. It wasn't really mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to do this or I want to make that. That. It's just at that moment in time, mm. that's what I was interested in, and that carried through for a while. And I think it. You know, it carries through in my work in certain I think the LSD musical is going back to that, actually, mm. which I have not done in a while.
1: It's mm. fascinating. That's really interesting. Uh, 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 Terry, I think I, uh, you were going to ask something.
2: I, you know, I, I like Elizabeth, I was quite struck by what you said at the end of the preface, which is that it, it would have been helpful to you as both a writer and a director to have a book like this to read in 1982. And this struck me because when when I started directing and I'd never done it before, it was natural for me to go out and look for things to read about it and there is almost nothing of, of value of quality that's nuts and boltsy that just tells you what to do, how I do this and and I was thinking as I read your book, my god, if I'd had this a few years ago, even though the experience is radically different, this is not a show, this is, this is not a show that provides precedent, but it just, it tells you how you get over all the bumps in the road, and, it's, and it tells you exactly how you did it. I, 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 the only book I've ever read remotely like this is Alan Egbert's The Crafty Art of Playmaking, and mm-hmm. i I must say that I think this book is going to be regarded as as a classic uh, in the field, and that it is going to be used if people have any sense as a teaching tool. Um, I, I and it's, critics should all have to read it too, because you know often they don't really know how you get the curtain up, uh, and um, you tell as far as I can, as far as I can tell, you tell everything here, you and your your interviewees.
3: Oh, well, thanks. The only book I remember reading on how to direct was a book by Harold Klurman. And um, all I remember was, well, there's only three things you have to do. Pick the right theater. (laughs) You know, uh, it was like pick the right theater, cast the right people. And I don't know what the third one was. And I thought, well, that's not helping me much.
2: (laughs) It's be like Harold Klurman.
3: Yeah, I guess so. But there wasn't much back then anyway. But I'm like you. I mean, I love reading books about how things get made. You know, I also like that. I, I I hope that maybe people who aren't necessarily like we are in the theater might actually find it interesting, too, that the audience might realize they don't know what goes into it. And, um,
1: I just I, I like those
3: kinds of books. So.
1: Well, actually, I, I I was doing a story recently where one of the people was they were talking about um, how uh, it was it was a, 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 an out of work actor was ta- was teaching and she said that you know what she found out from people was you know the theater is one of the one of those odd things where people really do want to know what's going on backstage they mm. want to understand the process <laughs> um, it really is interesting to hear this stuff it's not just um, a, a manual but it's also it provides a deeper way to experience theater. Well,
3: particularly, you know, actors who pay no attention to the stagehands. It makes me nuts. <laughs> it really does. And stagehands who pay no attention to the actors, you know. Right, right. I mean, I'm, I think people hate it, but I make everybody get on stage and introduce themselves to each other and mm. wear name mm. tags and just like, guys, you just can't be about your own little world. You really have got to. You know, if that guy doesn't give you your prop, you're screwed, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm screwed. So, (laughs) you know, make noise to the prop guy.
1: Well speaking of just I'm just curious cuz we we haven't talked about flying over sunset I'm just curious are you how, where are where is your headspace right now with that production how um wh- where are you on the timeline and how uh ang- anxious are you about that this thing is going to get up and go
3: Well I I just got back from 3 days of meetings with my designers um uh, the visual design the uh, set and projection designers and um You know, on one hand, it's very unique that we we were able to film the show from the back of the house. We ended up closing the day the first preview was the preview audience was coming at four o'clock in the afternoon. So,
1: um,
3: but, you know, I I made my notes. Uh, I made the company come in the next day just to rehearse because I just couldn't say goodbye at that night anyway. And some of them already. Mm -hmm. We had a rehearsal day and I made all my notes. Stuck them in a drawer and never thought about it again, frankly, Uh, and now pulling it out and looking at it again, it's um, it's kind of a very unique opportunity. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever have an opportunity, hopefully not like this again, but um, to kind of approach it like. like you forgot you ever did it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I mean, it's all very familiar but when you're in the middle of it, you don't see it very well. And that's kind no. of why you want an audience. You know, when I sit with an audience I can see it, but when I'm just sitting there with tech tables mm-hmm. and in a rehearsal hall, you know, it's very hard to you know what what the specificity that you want, but you don't get the overall picture I've,
0: of it. Actually, do do you have do, do you have times when you're your job as the writer gets in conflict with your job as Mm. the director. And how do the two work together? Like, do you have the different sense of ownership over the material depending on which hat you're wearing on at any given time or how's that working? I
3: mean, it took a long time to figure that one out, but um, basically the hard part is when you have actors, you know, and then suddenly you're in these discussions about what the writer wrote and Finally, Mm. I realized I can't do that. So I just announced to everyone, the writer's not here today. So we're just going to take the words (laughs) on the page and we're going to make them work. And Mm -hmm. that's what I do rather than, and I have to hold myself back from like rewriting this line and that word and whatever. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's amazing about actors, wonderful actors can make things work that, don't work. It's weird, but, uh, Hmm. Hmm. and Mandy and Bernadette are perfect, perfect examples of that. Um, they just never stopped working to make that show work. And one of the reasons Mandy was maybe more than a little neurotic about it was for some reason he thought it was his fault, you know, until he realized he was doing the best he could do with the circumstances. Till he we realized had. it
0: was your fault.
3: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I think we wrote a song about that <laughs> in the woods. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So um, you know, and I tried once not directing a show of mine. It was a terrible experience. Mm. And my wife said to me, "You've got to direct him because you're visual, and that's how you have to see it come." Make it come to life visually. You I, know, I, I don't know.
0: Have you? But do you've had case, Have you had cases where you directed something you did not write? You like? Oh okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how's yeah. that working out? Do you feel it's like it's really?
3: It's much easier.
0: Much easier. Yeah. Well,
3: I mean, you just tell the writer go home and do this, go do that, or please explain, <laughs> or please explain <laughs> to me what I'm supposed to be doing here. But I only mm. pick things that I think are, are mm. interesting and that I want to do, or that on occasion when I needed to. Get a paycheck, you know. So uh, it's a very different mindset, though, when you're not the author. Yeah.
2: Well, I, let us, uh, let me ask you one last question, which is when did you know that you had written something that was going to, in this show, um, Sunday, that you had written something that was going to live, that was going to have a permanent life? When did it suddenly hit you that you guys had? the bullseye
3: oh oh golly i'm not sure i even think of it that way now although the popularity of the book is so shocking to me i thought it would be a little niche book for you know a couple thousand people who you know are those rabbit fans of this show um i i don't know you know it's not a show that gets done very much and though it had two broadway revivals they were very short revivals and the run on Mm. broadway was very short so I I don't know that I'd even put it in a category of something that has the kind of, I don't know how long it will live on, as opposed to Into the Woods, which was something that has uh, just blossomed and I think will always be around, mostly because schools put, put it on. And when schools put on shows, as I learned is... They take the sets and the costumes and they put them in a closet for three years and pull them out and do it again because they don't have to pay <laughs> for them anymore. So I understood now, oh, I see, that's how that works, you know, you know um, And Sunday's not that kind of a show. It's not for everybody, but um, I think I like the people it's for, so uh, you know, mm. I hope there will always be somebody that it's for. And I, I think, think
2: that is true,
3: and I think actors; those are two great roles. And I think if really talented actors want to get that show done, they will. And regional theaters, it gets done, you know, periodically. But it's it's not a it, it it's it's not a blockbuster or anything. No. Well,
1: I the classic I, it's, anyway. a blo- it's a you know in my in my emotional life, it is a blockbuster. Oh, thank so you. and and now i'm waiting for the revival of passion um me because too. that has
3: <laughs> with lady gaga <laughs> that, wouldn't lady gaga be oh great? my god, god that's a great idea yes. oh my i've been oh, trying right. trying to get you know my she's even brilliant don't get me started but she should do that she'd be so yes. brilliant
1: yes
3: holy oh, crap oh, i'll wow. be
1: so lucky all right yeah. yeah that is a great idea well listen james we are so thrilled that you spent some time with us oh, it's we fun. Jordan talking to you we could spend another hour um but maybe you have yeah, a another
0: life. hour <laughs> dedicated to the beef between Jonathan tunic and Paul Geminiani because oh, that was wow. so much fun
3: <laughs> well oh, that's that, that, that's a only taste for the reader. half of it in the book uh, let me I tell you i could tell i could tell wow. I could, uh <laughs> steve really wanted that out of the book and 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 it was much longer section and it's it's interesting because I didn't even know about it. So it was interesting to me to find out. But I said to Steve, look, people got to know that people argue and and don't necessarily get along. And that's part of what we do. We have to learn how to
0: but, but, navigate but, those but, waters. What's interesting about this particular one is that it's actually also illuminating about their jobs. Yeah. Because it impacts how they do their jobs.
1: Right. Well, I I also think that uh, saying that there was a Tunic-Gemignani feud, will sell another 3,000 copies (laughs) right off this podcast, (laughs) you know?
3: Oh, okay. I'll hold you to (laughs) that.
1: Well,
2: to our listeners, uh, I think it should be clear to you by now, buy and read, putting it together, it is going to be a a classic of, of the genre, and we all loved it. You will, too. Thank you so much, James Lepine, for joining us.
3: My pleasure. It was really fun chatting with you guys. I I just want to listen into your next show with someone else, so I can watch you while you have that interview. It's it's really fun.
1: Yeah. Well, the the feud between Elizabeth and me is real. So <laughs> okay. that's you know yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: I, I, think uh, should... I heard that Ryan Murphy is is, is working on a uh, dramatization, uh,
1: uh, a season. You know, yeah, yeah that'll fill up a lot of time. He's looking for a yeah.
3: director. Tell him to give me a call.
1: God love you.
3: Oh,
0: my God, okay. I would love that. We, we'll that. Great we'll talking to you guys. All right.
3: All right. And thanks for your enthusiasm for the book. It means a lot.
1: Okay. Oh, good pleasure. Bye-bye.
3: Take care. Bye. Our
2: pleasure. We're now going to spend some time talking about what we've seen lately, uh, starting with Elizabeth.
0: So my pick is something that I saw when I was in Crete, Colorado, which was, of course, the, the big thing that... I was alluding, alluding to uh, in our last episode, uh, and I went there to write a story about Creed Repertory Theater. It was lovely, lovely trip. And one of the great things about that trip is that I got to see two wonderful actresses, who, of course, were new to me because they act in Creed, and I had never been to Creed before, Christy Brent and Annie Butler. And uh, they've been there for years and, if not decade, decades, decades. And this season, which is a pretty weird season for Creed because their shows are outdoors or under a tent, they're leading a, a cabaret, uh, a cabaret evening. And the the one I saw was just incredibly funny. And it made me really want to see um, their production of Ripcord, the uh, comedy by David Lindsay Bear, which is set in a retirement home, because uh, Christie in that production was playing the role created by Mary Louise Burke in New York. And if you no Mary-Louise Burke, you have a pretty good idea of, of, of Christie's kind of like general attitude. And Annie Butler was playing the role created by Holland Taylor. And it also gives you a pretty good idea of her general attitude. Um, and because they're part of a repertory company, they get to do tons of great roles um, in tons of plays. And they get opportunities that actors in bigger City probably would not get. And nobody else out of Crete has seen them. So, you know you know where you need to go uh, next summer when the Crete rep is back. Um,
2: mm. Peter and I uh, went mm. to see the same show and wrote about it out of town. Uh, tell, tell them where we went,
1: Peter. Uh, we went to see our town uh, in Peterborough, New Hampshire, by the Peterborough Players Notable, not only for the production, but also the fact that uh, the town of Peterborough is widely believed to be the basis for Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, the, the, the town of our town. And, Terry,
2: what did you think? Well, uh, what they did was perform the show outdoors on uh, a, an improvised uh, platform uh, on a, a large lawn behind some of the downtown buildings. So uh, right there, you realize what the the feel of the show is going to be. The town itself uh, seems in a very real way to be its star um, because you don't have to spend much time looking around Mm. Peterborough to to imagine that Wilder was here once. He wrote uh, quite a bit of the show at the MacDonald Colony. Uh, The cemetery where the um, graveyard scene of our town uh, is in fact set is up on a hill overlooking the town. You can see tombstones where Wilder got the names for some of his characters, and it's an uncanny sensation to see the show in this place at this moment. And I, I there, there were many other interesting aspects to the production which I liked very much, but I found this especially moving that we were we were in that place uh, where this. This classic of American theater, maybe, uh, maybe the in some ways the great American play, the one that deliberately tells us most about ourselves. We saw it in Grover's Corners.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I, what struck me too, Terry, was the um, was the casting. Uh, you know, it has not; it is not f- the first time, or nor is it unique, to have a. Uh, a, a diverse cast portray our town, but it seemed particularly meaningful to to have, uh, black, brown, Asian, mixed, ri- biracial actors and white actors playing the story without any um indication that that th- these things are noted by anyone. You know, it becomes very very significant uh when you know Peterborough embraces that. That kind of performance—the first time in the eight times they've done this production that they have embraced um, non-traditional, quote unquote, casting for, for our town. So that in itself felt, you know, very moving to me, and and added a dimension that made it feel like, you know, a pilgrimage to uh to our yeah. town in twenty twenty one.
2: The play strives deliberately, it, I think, that Wilder knew what he was doing to have a universal quality about it. And nowadays, to see a, mm-hmm. a, a radically diverse cast, I, I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but I think more than half of the of the actors on that stage were people of color. It, mm. it seems to make it universal in mm-hmm. a new way, a fresh way. And not that right. not that our right. town needs freshening; it's perpetually relevant. But it really got, yeah. it really got to me.
0: Yeah
1: yeah 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 no there are moments when it's uh that when they're speaking to the to, to the to the to the the specialness of life the you know but that is the, there's nothing less there's nothing more universal than than talking about how we all don't notice the the little things that the little joys and the little sorrows um and they don't stay with us i mean that that just and that just is magnified when you're yeah, I've seen a
2: lot of our towns and a lot of good our towns and some of the greatest ones from David Cromer's production on down. But this one, because of the, mm. the new sense of particularity provided by its locale and its cast, this is one that's going to be sticking with me.
1: Well, And one last thing to note for me, you know, I, one of the interesting uh, uh, aspects was that uh, uh, Alia Whitmore uh, a biracial who describes herself as biracial. She's a, she's the daughter of, she's the granddaughter of James Whitmore senior, who is a very, you know, uh, 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 uh legendary American actor. Uh, won a Tony was in, nominated for Academy award was supposed was, was in our town, you know, knew the Peterborough players and she's in this production. Uh, and you know, just that sort yeah, of, yeah I, I saw him,
2: the stage manager you in did oh, Kai, that's right you did one, of, course. of course of course it did. was one of the most moving experiences he was only a few months from his own death but he was well into his 80s and he played it without a trace of sentimentality mm. he was he was one of the greats mm.
0: guys unfortunately we have to wrap this up uh, unless Peter, did you want to talk about Detroit 67 as well, or do you want to put in a quick word about that or, uh,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Th- that, since you mentioned it and I don't want to shock the two of you, uh, out of your chairs, <laughs> but, uh, it's a digital production that I really enjoy, <laughs> uh, by signature theater. Yeah, I know. I know. It's yeah, you know, nev- that, never say never saying never. Like,
0: oh, this may be yeah. here for a while.
1: Yeah, well, it's 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 a it's a production by Signature Theatre, filmed and filmed in a very sophisticated way with the camera uh, in 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 the way that maybe Hamilton was filmed. You really see the camera move around the stage. It's not a stationary camera. It really gives life to the story. It really adds something to Dominique Morisot's depiction of. Of Detroit in 1967, and the story of a a white woman who is brought home injured to a a black family's basement, which is you know surprising and and absolutely intriguing the way it plays out, uh, and it plays uh, through the middle of September on it's, Signature Theaters. I, so you'll I'm you'll have, a have to watch to that it. one.
0: It's 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 yeah. my favorite over Detroit trilogy of the three. That's that's my yes, favorite of the I three. Think, yeah,
1: I think it might be your best play. Um, you know, author of Skeleton Crew, which is going to be on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Pipeline was done at Lincoln Center. Uh, you know, uh, she wrote the book for uh, Ain't Too Proud. Uh, you know, she's she's a she's she's a big deal. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, okay, so I think that's it for today. Oh my god, that was ac- action packed, you guys. It, this one wow. had everything. Indeed. It was like a Southern Night Life skit come to life. Oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> and. We will clearly have James Lapine back, you know, if he, ever, if he ever writes, like, a book about Into the Woods, which, considering yes. the popularity of that show, will probably sell, like, hot cakes. And then we can know Indeed. all about what James Gordon did on the set of that movie. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, you heard, like, the rumors about what he was doing on set. I don't know. I, I, uh-huh. I, I read the internet too much. But anyway, until then, <laughs> I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli.
1: I'm Peter Marks. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. I'm
2: Terry Teachout. Our producer, shall we say showrunner, is Erica Wong. You can Ooh, follow us on people. Twitter at Three on the Aisle and write to us at threeontheaisle at gmail.com. Spell it out,
1: please. Yeah, make sure that you leave a five-star, six-star rating and a rave review, as we say in the business of reviewing on iTunes or Google Play. Yeah, I
0: think a six stars is a minimum, actually. That's kind of like, Indeed. that's <laughs> the bottom for us. Like six stars. Is I agree. Awakening. Nothing else counts. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on The Aisle.